then it girl is meant to end in tragedy. And I was like, that's not going to be me. Like when she was comparing me to Edie fucking Sedgwick, who was dead, I'm like, I get it. I get the comparison. I'm happy to be compared to Edie because she was amazing, but also like really severely mentally ill. <laughs> like I like, how do you survive this and not fall into that? I'm James St. James. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York Nightlife Legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined by my co-hosts, as always, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Hello, boys. Hey. Hi, hi, hi. We are celebrating the icons, the party monsters, the club kids, the night crawlers, the denizens of the dark, the children of the night, architects of the club scene, legends all. Today, we welcome uh, someone who I've known for 35 plus years, which is weird because she doesn't look a day over 25. I don't know how you do it. It makes me furious. Seriously, how did you do that? <laughs> it, it makes me furious. <laughs> I mean, here you are with three ugly bald men <laughs> and you have this beautiful vision. <laughs> she is an actor, a star of stage, screen, and television. She is a director, producer, playwright. Uh, she is a former MTV VJ, which we are going to get into. Not many people remember this. Uh, she is an animal rights activist, a human rights activist. But for our purposes, she is one of the highest profile it girls of the 1980s. Welcome, Lisa Edelstein, a.k.a. Lisa E. <laughs> Worship. First of all, congratulations <laughs> on another great season of The Kaminsky Method that just wrapped up and is on Netflix. Thank you. Uh, your character is Thank absolutely you. hysterical. She is sober this season, mm -hmm. but still chaotic. And I imagine that you probably have a lot of experience to draw on that character. You probably know people like this from your time in the club scene. Is that how you got to her? The club scene and beyond. She's just a horrible narcissist. <laughs> Which we knew. You know we I knew mean? a lot and of those. <laughs> a lot of those. And really gen very earnest about it. She really means it. I my favorite this season is her speech at her dad's funeral, which is just such a beautiful encapsulation of narcissism. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> it's like when do you get to be the worst person in the world? <laughs> You know, you talk about working with legends and talking to legends and everything, and and you have had such a, I mean, it, Kathleen Turner and Anne Margaret and Jane Seymour, so many great women on the show. It's such a great show for you to be involved in. It really is. It is true. It's a it's a bevy of beauties. I mean, Anne Margaret, she was so frustrated on her first day because they wouldn't let her on the lot because she forgot her ID. But I mean, <gasps> it's clearly Anne Margaret. <laughs> She was like, no, that's the rule. <laughs> so she had to, Kathleen Turner got in a car accident on her first day to work. It's fun. I love knowing these gals. This is going to be a hard conversation. 
with you because we were at lunch a couple weeks ago and we were talking about doing the show. And I said, you know, Lisa, you pretend like you don't remember anything, but I suspect that you really do. And you shook your head and you said, no, I really don't remember. And we were with Brian Rabin and he said, he rolled his eyes and he said, she really doesn't remember anything. (laughs) It's so funny because I didn't even remember that we were at the factory until I saw you doing an interview talking about it. I was like, really? (laughs) That's amazing. You don't remember, not because, because you were never really a party girl, right? I just don't remember. I just literally, I think that that time period for me was so exciting and overwhelming. And I really had no idea who the fuck anybody was, um, except that they were amazing. I was so grateful to be in a community of people who were breaking all the rules. And I I was like desperate for it. So to me, it all washed into one big experience. It's like I was a whirling dervish. You know, it's like being a whirling dervish and then being asked to describe what the room was filled with. I have no idea. You must remember meeting James St. James. Now, James is too shy to ask this question, I know. But like, how did you meet James and what on earth did you think of him? I I just... We met in the elevator at the dorm, right? I have my experience, but you tell me yours and I'm going to tell you mine. I remember meeting you in the elevator and we just, I don't know what, I just loved you the minute I met you. And we you were full of energy and we were giggling immediately. And then you started to ask me to go out with you. And James had like an entire plan mapped out for our lives. I did. Well, I, we, and we're going to talk about that because we, I have step by steps of how we were going to conquer the New York club scene. It was, oh, yes. It was like Batman and Robin and I was Robin. I was the young one who didn't know what the fuck was happening, but, <laughs> but he had it planned out. It was very exciting. What I remember, I remember it was, we, we, we lived at NYU at the dorms at, at Rubin on Fifth Avenue and 10th Street. And um, yes. it was like one of the first days after orientation. I remember everybody was coming back into the dorms and it was a big crowd. And I remember you came through the you know revolving door and you it was like one of those slow motion things where you flipped your hair out of the way and you smiled and it was just like energy. I just saw like this just it was like you were walking in slow motion and you smiled and you waved to me because we had talked earlier. And I just thought that girl's got it, doesn't I thought there's a glamour about that girl and I'm gonna tap into that by God. <laughs> I love it. You used me. I did, I did. And I because I was looking for someone to be Edie to my auntie. <laughs> And I was obviously looking for the same thing. I mean, we were two kids who were very ambitious. We wanted to be in the world and we didn't really have access to it. And James had a really amazing plan. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because I do have my diaries from that period. (gasps) I thought you lost them. And I was going through them the other night. And some of the stuff is just at some of it is is awful and needs to be burned and never seen by the public but some of it is so precious and adorable. And i'm gonna read a few things here and there this is a big reveal i didn't know you kept a diary because you've always pretended you were out of your mind on drugs you can't remember a thing no no i mean yeah i was but but i that was later that yeah, was later but i did you know later. from 81 until 91 i have every day but basically what it is is it's 
what I wore, where I went, and who was there. It's not a lot of like gossip. It's just like I was wearing a spandex and pumps and a the <laughs> Planet of the Apes lunchbox, and I saw Diane and Michael and Porgard. <laughs> it's basically that. But one of the funny things that I keep going back to is that there, like you just said, there are. I've always maintained that I never met Bianca Jagger, and looking through there. We, you and I sat next to Bianca at a dinner party for three hours talking about her garden in Nicaragua. Can you imagine how bored she was? <laughs> I thought that I'd only met like Way Bandy, the famous makeup artist. I only thought I met him once. We spent every night with him for like a year. You did? I want to meet these. Will you send me excerpts? I don't think that I ever went to Paradise Garage and I'm there like every weekend. We were there. Yeah, that's so funny. That's so, it's just, there's so many things that I think that I remember that I don't really remember, but it's, it's very funny. But, um, I, when we did first start going out, I do remember that I had flashcards for you that I had made <laughs> of everyone. And it would be, and I put, and it'd be like Terry toy, <laughs> like, you know, like, like uh-huh, this is Beauregard house in Montgomery. What does he do? He was serious. He'd been studying. He's been studying all the social columns. Yeah. Yes. And I'd say, and you know, and this is this is, you know, Fenton Bailey. Who did who is he? What does he do? Da, da, da. And and we would do that. We'd play that every night before we went out. <laughs> he already knew that I can't remember people who they are or what their names are. He already was prepared for that. <laughs> like you will remember. But I think what I do remember was that the idea was we would be a power couple that I was going to, you were, you were the straight voluptuous beauty and I was the wacky gay man and that you in, in straighter environments, you would have the advantage, but I would have access that I wouldn't normally have and vice versa when we were in gay environments that you would have access and I would have the advantage. And so we played off. And we were, we were that power couple. We Lisa, James, James and Lisa every, every and yeah. um, we invented the idea that we would work the party. I would go clockwise and you would go counterclockwise. Oh, and <laughs> you invented it. You really thought this out. Uh-huh. And I would and I would just go around saying, Where's Lisa? And you'd go around saying, Where's James? And that way everyone would know our names. By the time we got uh -huh. to the other side and of the room. I mean, it's kind of genius. It's really like what social media is nowadays, but without <laughs> it, there was no internet. So he created, he figured out how to be a presence somewhere when you were nobody. Um, and so that's what we did. We'd get to area, it'd be packed, and we'd walk the opposite direction and ask for each other all the way around the room until we met each other at the other side. And then, and then we, we'd see each other and we'd say, James, you'd say, Lisa. And then we'd make a circle saying, I found her. I found, oh, it's, and then that way when we left, everyone would know our names because we spent all night. So uh, funny. You remember when you threw me, because I, I have the invitation, you threw me a birthday party when it wasn't my birthday. Oh, it was like in November and your birthday's in May. Yeah, and my birthday's in May. And we had a big birthday party in, in an abandoned warehouse in Soho. It was a floating opium den called Nickel Bag. And it was, yeah. um, it was, it was in Soho. And I remember that night. And the, the reason why I remember that night is because it was just a decadent, decadent party. It was really fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And I was on yeah. ecstasy. And at one point I was lying face down in a mud puddle. Right. And I was completely <laughs> like haggard. 
And do you remember Paul Goebel? He was Boy George's makeup artist. Oh, yes. I remember Paul. I remember Paul. Yes. And he picked up my head and he said, oh, darling, no, no, no. And he took out his makeup and he went boom, 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 like that. And I have never been more beautiful in my life. Literally three minutes with this makeup, with Boy George's makeup artist. And it was like the best I've ever looked ever. And I will never forget that. <laughs> I just remember there were like 3,000 people packed into this warehouse singing happy birthday to me. Um, and then... And nobody knew who the fuck I was. And then, and then, like the guys who ran Nickelback threw me in a in a car, and we drove around the city with all this cash. <laughs> it was very suspect. <laughs> um, do you remember the first night we went out? The first place we went? The very first time? No. Where did we go? I remember going to the Gaiety, but that wasn't our first night out. Oh right, and that's where Suzanne Barsh and Michael and Michael Smith, and that's how come we got in good with Area because we arrived with them from the Gaiety with Michael Smith and Suzanne. Yes, I didn't know Suzanne was there. I I only remember Michael being there. That's funny. I remember Michael Schmidt at the Gaiety. Of course, was a you know a gay strip club in seedy downtown you know Times Square. But like, you know, it was Midtown. It was in yeah. Times Square. And it wasn't just like a strip club. It was like a strip and then finish yeah, club. Yes. It was very, <laughs> it was seedy, seedy, seedy. And we- Extremely disgusting, but like fascinating. And that was, for me at that time, I just wanted to see everything. I didn't care what it was. Well, because you went in in a ball gown, <laughs> right? I was so excited to just see the world of, of for all it had to offer, even if it was really gross. <laughs> it was a pretty disgusting place. But I remember Michael Schmidt was sitting there in a full-length mink coat doing his makeup yeah. at this just CD strip club. And it was so – but it was very fabulous. I do remember that. But I think the first club we went to was Kamikaze. Oh, my God. Where was that? Was that on 21st Street? I feel like it was underground on the – Northern side of Union Square Park. No, that's the underground. That was the underground. Oh, that was the underground. Where was Kamikaze? I remember it. I think Kamikaze was like in that sort of limelight area of Chelsea. I remember Stephen Sabin worked there, and um, that's where Bruce uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis got his job. He was a bar bartender. Right, he's a bartender. Right. Anyway, so we went there with um. Remember my roommates, um, Billy and Andre. Uh huh. I don't remember, but yes. And Alicia Gagaro, who works at World of Wonder now. She was uh she wore she lived at Ruben, and um some other people, uh Amy and Mimi. I, I don't even. Remember. But then the first time we went out. Wait, Alicia, who was friends with Stephen Sabin, I went out with her. Yes. Yeah. Yes, she would. We would go out with them all the time. She did not tell me that that we used to go out clubbing together. That is really crazy. I didn't remember. She lived at Ruben. She was. She lived in the dorms. What? Yes. You know who else oh lived at Ruben? Um, uh, Adam Sandler was a good friend of ours. He lived with Andrew. <laughs> he was a good friend of ours. Yes, we would go hang out in his room all the time, and we had no idea. That is really funny. That's really funny. And also Alec Mappa. Well, I remember Alec. I remember Alec. Because Alec was an amazing performer. Yeah, yeah. Um, not that Adam Sandler was too, but um, but that's so funny. That's so funny. And I don't know if you remember, but when we would eat in the dining hall, um, all the Parsons kids would eat in the dining hall as well. 
And um, uh, there was Stephen Gann, who now does Visionaire magazine. He's and he would come in in pearls that. and a tube skirt and heels, <laughs> and we were all we were all. And he had been in ID magazine, and we were all just in awe of him. It's so funny. Which college was this? And what were you studying? Theater. We were at, we were both in the theater program at NYU. You were circling the square. Right. Yeah. Initially, and then I was ETW, but you started in ETW. Yeah. I, I started in a, at the experimental yeah. theater wing. Yeah. So Randy and I were in film school too. We were at NYU too. We were at film school. Oh really? Oh. But we were over in the graduate thing, which was like over on Seventh Street. So we never. Oh, we were undergrads. Yeah, we were undergrads. But then our first big club was Area. We hit Area, and we did that in, like, November. I mean, we were doing danceateria and stuff like that, too, but... Well, I also remember we would go to Pyramid, and we would go at 9 o'clock at night because at 9.30 they started charging $5. So we would go (laughs) at 9 o'clock, get one drink, and nurse it till about 1 in the morning when it started happening. And we would just sit in a corner for four (laughs) hours waiting. I love that place. (laughs) I think it just closed. I think the Pyramid just closed. I love that place. Our first trip to area was um, uh, for the opening of fashion, I think. It was the the area every month redid itself completely and had a different theme. You know, I was supposed to go to area like a year before that, and the theme was red. And I got invited because I was in a dance program at Harvard in the summer. That was this amazing program with all these incredible companies. Wait, this is before, uh, this is your your senior year? Before we ever met, yeah. And and uh, the, one of the women who had a dance company just really loved me and um, she wanted me to dance with this other thing she was doing, but I couldn't because I was in school. And then she invited me to go to the opening of area. And I had like, I had my red unitard on and a big red cape. I was like fully (laughs) ready to go. Um, And she canceled. And I think about it now, like I wish I had just gone anyway, but, um, but it was terrifying to like, you know, I, I was, I didn't know anybody. And, um, and then I also wonder, like, why was she inviting a 17-year-old girl? <laughs> right? There's maybe something. She was like a 40-year-old woman. Why was she inviting this 17-year-old out to a nightclub in New York? Uh, maybe a little nefarious. <laughs> I don't know. But also, like, then I think maybe she understood where I needed to be, which, which she wasn't wrong. Because as soon as I landed in that world, thanks to you, I was like, oh, my God, I've, I've found my people. Before you, you know, met James and started to uh, uh, do your whirly dervish, did you, um, were you going to clubs and stuff like that? Like, yeah, I started going to nightclubs when I was about 14. Um, like my sister and I went in the first, she was 18. And so we went to Magique, which was some discotheque. I think it became the Red Parrot. Um, but the, I was 14. I had a side ponytail, a headband, a like a sporty mini skirt and sneakers on. And they like took one look at me and like immediately swept me up to the VIP room <laughs> because New York nightlife was so pervy. Um, and the, that night was a party for a porn star. So I was just like, I immediately 
so fascinated by the world. Everybody was like taking their clothes off and handing out business cards with big dicks on them. <laughs> and like there was a stripper. And I mean, I was in absolute heaven just because I was so hungry to see something different in the world. And um, and then it got really, really crowded and some guy was trying to molest me and like putting his hands in my clothes. And so we had to sneak out the back and climb down the fire escape <laughs> because of, I was 14. And that was, there was, a, I was there because there were some pervy people who wanted a 14 year old at their party. Um, but yeah. So the thing was, is that you were so very innocent when we start, we both were, we were both just fetuses. Yeah. You know, we, we looked out, out for each other and we had people who looked out for us very luckily, but it's true. Talking about your innocence there, I, finding in my diary, there was a story where um, you and I are walking out of area at the end of the night and it's me, you and Benji, Ben Vereen Jr. Remember we used to hang. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we yes. would hang out with Ben Breen, and we were going to breakfast at 103. And as we're walking out, Andy Warhol is walking in with Tony Shafrazi. And Tony Shafrazi was is it was the great, you know, um, art, ga art gallery art owner. Dealer. And he yeah. made or broke, you know, you know, artists. And it was Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring. And very, very imposing. And so we stop and we're talking to Andy. And we introduce ourselves to Tony. And we're just chattering away. And then Tony's ditches Andy and says he's going to come to breakfast with you and I at 103. And so we go and have breakfast with Tony Shafrazi. And I have a feeling what was happening was that he thought he was going to get something. He thought he was going to get a little nookie. And then you in your infinite innocence was like, okay, bye. <laughs> and we just end up leaving. And I'm sure he was like, what the fuck was that? What, the, what, what, what did we just do? funny there, there are so many times so where people funny. he was a little yeah he was a little lecherous tony shaprazi i do remember that i got to understand it as time went by <laughs> <laughs> very slow picking that up but i think there are a lot of cases where people were probably hitting on you and you just you were sort of either oblivious to it or or something because yeah because you were very innocent yeah and I remember that probably got you into some weird situations at some point. Yeah, it did. I mean, I, I was really, um, that wasn't why I was no, there. Yeah. I was really there to learn. I, I felt like I had been uh, kept in a box and I was there to absorb everything. I just wanted to understand the world in another way. But that kind of naivete does get you in a lot of trouble. It's true. Like you, you get into some pretty dark circumstances if you don't snap out of it. But we I do feel like we had a lot of protectors around us. And I don't I don't really know why, but it was very even even the New York even Maureen Dowd when she wrote that article was protective of me. We are definitely gonna get to that. Yeah. You started working at um Palladium. Yeah. You you were bartending there. And I have a funny story about that that I found in the diaries too. You probably don't remember this, but um, you didn't get the job at first. No, I auditioned twice. And then we went out and we ran into Steve Rubell and you, we went up to him and you said, I, I tried to work at, I'm trying to get a job at Palladium and I didn't get it. And he said, that's bullshit. You're hired and uh, I'll take care of it. And then the next day you were, you, you got it. Yeah. And then that's why I, I couldn't, I wasn't officially working the opening night. I was I was trailing. I was watching somebody else do it. And I wasn't in the, I was moved to the Michael Todd room, like after the first two weeks or something. 
Oh, it was such a funny job. Because Polly Perrette from NCIS was a was a waitress there, right? I had no idea. I knew I knew that Polly and I knew each other, but I didn't know that I knew Polly. And Kari were also worked there. Do you remember Kari? Oh yeah, I remember Kari. Yeah. Yeah. And Idalis was one of the bartenders. I loved Idalis because Idalis, we had the, the perfect girl conversation in the early in the mid eighties. She taught me how to make my hair bigger. <laughs> you just flip it from one side as it's drying, and then you flip it to the other side. <laughs> Three months into going out, okay, we've been going out. We started really going out heavily in January, and this is March, okay? And I write in my diary, I've given up clubs for good. Uh <laughs> Lisa talked me into it. She said people were bored of us. We need to um we need space to grow, you know, always leave them wanting more and all. So during this time I'm going to rest and buy clothes and makeup and learn how to apply it and then experiment with my hair. Uh we're already staging our comeback. <laughs> we ought to be tan and gorgeous and eye-poppingly noticeable. We want we want to generate excitement with our reappearance. <laughs> <laughs> We've been going out for three months and we're staging our comeback. <laughs> so when did you reappear? Like the, the next night? Or? Probably like two days later. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. It's sweet. I remember we were making those big hats. I remember we were like knitting those big hats. Now let's talk about some fashion mistakes that we have made. <laughs> because there have been First of all, I had, you had at least you had a trust fund. I didn't have any cash coming in. So I was literally wearing the the stuff I wore like my bot mitzvah. <laughs> I was like, I've got a strapless dress. <laughs> well, you know, thankfully at that time it wasn't like today where you only wear something once and you can never wear it again. You know, like we were able to regenerate outfits over and over. And, you know, I was told that during the punk days and during the new wave era um, that people would get one outfit and wear it for a month straight or two months straight until it like rotted off their backs and then they'd get another outfit. And we sort of almost kind of did that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that red sequin jacket of mine, I wore, must have worn. A, yes. Yeah. But we, at one point, um, I noticed that uh, we were talking to some people and the next week they started carrying lunch boxes. And then yeah. another time I had a vintage the fringe skirt. hula skirt and it was yeah. fringe, silk fringe. And I wore it as a, yep. like a, a shawl. And then I was walking down the street and at Ibiza in the window, everybody had was wearing uh, the hula skirts as shawls. And I kept thinking, this isn't a coincidence. Like, did you notice that I knew exactly what he was about to say? That it was the hula skirt yes, next. Yes, because I, I've been talking yeah, about this. Because this was very, very upsetting to James at the time. <laughs> well, but then I kept thinking, well, whatever we do, people are going to copy. So I got it in my head that the next big thing was going to be giant picture hats that we embroidered with yarn. <laughs> And I made Lisa spend every waking minute embroidering her hat in the in the in the. This was black. Mine was yes. white. 
because I had a, I had one of my three dresses was white, so match and my, I had a black crinoline from my Hebrew school confirmation. <laughs> oh my god! But what we didn't realize was that if you yarn embroidered a hat base, that it was going to be heavy, and so they drooped. <laughs> <laughs> they were drooping down, and they were so heavy, and they were like it have it but we went to area like we were ready to just take over the fashion community <laughs> <laughs> another funny. one that another one of our fashion mistakes was we went to uh, a dinner for Karl Lagerfeld at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and we were invited with the details crew of Diane and Steven and like Elizabeth Saltzman and a bunch of fashion people and I wore it was like a women's bikini. I mean, it wasn't even a speedo. It was like a, a, a checkered uh, women's bikini with a little white fake fur bolero jacket and high heels and Shirley Temple hair, Shirley Temple curls. And you had just bought an Azadine Alaya dress that was sort of high and then it was cut down in the back really past your butt crack and it was laced up. But in your infinite innocence, you are backwards. You wore it backwards. <laughs> no, I, it wasn't a lie, but I remember the dress, and I didn't know I was wearing it backwards. Yes, that's it. And, and Until later. <laughs> we scandalized the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I think I read about this. and Why did I think it was a Comme de Gosse? Maybe Stephen Saban wrote about it. There was some scandal that you wore. It was, I know it was in Women's Wear Daily. It was in the New York Daily, New York Daily News. It was in the New York Post. It was everywhere. What, the, our, about our outfits? Because we were dragged over to meet Lagerfeld, and he took one look at us, and he, like, sort of sniffed in the air, like, what in the <laughs> hell is this? But then, by God, his next collection had a dress that was cut down to there, oh, that laced up, and he had a white fur bolero in the next Chanel collection. <laughs> I swear to God, we he might have been nasty to us, but he stole our damn look. <laughs> <laughs> Can, can you talk about the lunchbox? Like, because where did that come from? And like, what? why do you think it took off? Well, I had never been allowed to eat a, a cold lunch at school. From kindergarten until 12th grade, my mother made me buy hot lunch every single day. And I was so jealous of the kids who were able to bring lunches from home. And I, it was like it, all my life, I would just stare at like the Scooby-Doo lunchboxes and think, why can't I have lunch? You know, why? And my mom was just like, ah, here's your money. Go to school. You know, she didn't want to go. So, so when I finally got to New York, I was like, I am going to buy a lunchbox and I'm going to carry it around as a purse every day. And so that's why I started doing it. It was a genuine, yeah, it came from a genuine place. That's why it took off. You weren't, you weren't actually making a statement. You really wanted a lunchbox. And they all matched each outfits and everything. And um, so that's where that came from, definitely. You know, I always remember you two really being mostly with Stephen Saban and Michael Mosto. It seemed that wherever they were, you were close by. Lisa, tell us about them. Um, it's funny because... Uh, well, and I would say I'm Patrick McMullen. Patrick McMullen, too. My, Michael and I sort of paired off when you were working at Palladium. And then, Patrick, you yeah. talk about people who were looked after you. 
Patrick really was yeah. someone who took care of you and always promoted you and made sure that everything was perfect for you. Yeah, he was he he just loved me. He genuinely loved me, Patrick. Like on and he 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 wanted to celebrate me. So he always took pictures of me and he and he was the one that asked me I think it was him, or maybe it was at a random event where they asked me what my name was, and I just said Lisa E. I was in the midst of a, trying to figure out what to what my name should be because Lisa Edelstein is not very glamorous, and it, especially at the time. Nowadays, you can have uh, an ethnic name and and get away with it, but I, I actually lost a lot of work as an actor being an Edelstein. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, it 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 really was problematic, but at the same time. Um, I felt like I would be um, betraying my heritage by changing my name. I, I was really conflicted about it, genuinely. So, so when I was first asked what my name was, and I knew it was going to be in the paper, that's why I said Lisa E. My middle name is middle initial E. So, but there was also Sheila E. at the time, which was so. It's for but it wasn't even about that. It really wasn't. It was like, what can I call myself? That's still me. That doesn't deny me. That also gives me room to like expand it if I'm ready. <laughs> like, um, I remember Zach Galligan was like, what if you named your, change your name to Lisa Sparrow? <laughs> but at the time I was like, my boobs had gotten really huge. My butt had gotten really big. I was like, I am not a sparrow right now. <laughs> It's funny you mentioned that because I remember that happened overnight, literally. You, yeah, where I became Lisa. Oh, my body yeah. changing. And I remember yeah, going to pick I hit you puberty. up and you opened the door and you said, James, what's happening? I am completely new. I have a new body. <laughs> yeah. I actually hit puberty at 19. I know. And you were so mad because you were like, the more attention you get, the bigger your boobs get. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a funny story that I, that I found in my diaries again. And it's, um, uh, I had this red spandex dress with a fishtail on the end of it. And there was like tulle around it and a big black rose that I wore all the time. And um, there was a party. It was, uh, Angela Genklo, who is a uh, famous it girl, and her parents were very, you know, famous people as well. And she was in the publishing, publishing yeah. and uh, her, her mother was the daughter of Wizard of Oz director. Um, yeah. And so she was having a 30th anniversary party for, for them. And it was this big to do in the, at the tunnel of the basement. And you borrowed that red dress. And it was the everybody there just... Oh my God. Oh, I, you've never looked better. You are so, this is the best you've ever looked. And I was like, no, wait a minute. That's my, she's wearing my dress and I wore that dress and I look good. And I remember Lena Horn was there and she said, honey, you look fabulous. And I was like, no, but I look fabulous in it too. <laughs> and she was like, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. And then at the time there was that song, Lady in Red, she is dancing yes. with me. And I would always sing it and angry at you. Never seen so many people ask you if you wanted to dance. It's really funny. We did have a very bickery. We had a bickery friendship. Like we had a deep love, but it was a bickery one. I had this intellectual idea of what it would be. But then when you actually got attention, I would be mad and pout in a bathroom <laughs> stall, which must have been very frustrating for you because you were like, well, that's what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I was like your monster. You created a monster. 
she was taking over. And was the club scene for you then a stepping stone? Was that the idea? Like, what was the sort of when you went into it? I know you wanted to see the world and just get out of the box. Um, I just wanted to be an actress. And I really had no idea how to have access to any of the world. Um, and James had this amazing adventure planned for us. It was just like meeting somebody who had so, so many ideas was so exciting. Um, and I did feel like his muse in some way, you know, or like he was really very much leading the way. And I was absolutely willing to, to follow along because it was sounded like a great idea to me. Um, I wasn't really prepared for the fact that his plan really did work, but it it worked in a way that was unexpected um, or the way it felt was not how one would imagine it to feel like. But that's, I guess, further down the line in the conversation, you know, when when the article came out and what that experience was actually like. And well, let's talk about that a little bit, because. The the idea always was is that when you got to a certain point, then you could pivot and you could you could you know use that uh -huh. fame as a jumping as a you know, platform yeah. to jump into something. Which is, this is pre, again pre internet, which I think kids are doing all the time right. now. But back then, this was an analog version of it, where like first you have to actually have people know who you are, so then you can show them what you can do. That's what New York was, right? Like people people who who had a vision, had ambition, had dreams, you know, in all different disciplines, acting, art, whatever, you, you'd go to New York. Yeah. And, and you didn't start an Instagram page. You went out. You became famous below 14th Street, and that was your training wheels. To, 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 it was your first taste of how to deal with, with attention and deal with fame. Right. I mean, that is sort of ass backwards, but it is also right. I mean, other people auditioned for musicals and plays. <laughs> but <laughs> they did it that way. But there is that. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, for me, it was like that really wasn't my world in a way that was like super straight, that world. And I was weirder than that. And I didn't mm -hmm. really understand why that was. But the world of nightclubs, I was able to shine in that world. And the world of like theater, I didn't know how to fit in. I didn't know how to participate in that. Which is weird because you would think that the theater nerds and the theater weirdos would be weird enough, but they weren't weird enough. <laughs> they weren't. They're sort of straight. Yeah, yeah it's a different kind of flamboyance um uh we were like genuinely just oddballs um and so but also you were performing i mean it was it this was an amazing performance it was a 24 7 yes and but a weird performance like not like it wasn't conventional there was nothing conventional about it and that was what really i found creatively extremely exciting just there were no rules there to, that were not broken by somebody. And, and even though most of the people there were living on the edge of a razor blade, you know, there were between the AIDS crisis and the drug addiction and the mental illness. Like, I mean, I, I think people like Warhol really exploited that kind of, that kind of, David LaChapelle is another one who like really loves to be around people who are like at, at any moment are going to teeter over the edge, but maybe not like just that kind of high wire act is, is a very exciting energy to be around um, because any, anything is possible. Anything is possible. And that was just much more intriguing to me than genuinely intriguing to me than anything else. And then here was James like this 
he just, he, he had mapped out that world so specifically. It was, and it was again, like a world I didn't even know I was looking for. Um, but it was so exciting. Well, I think, um, that if you are young, if you're 18 years old and you don't have any experience behind you and you don't have any, uh, anything to show for yourself and you're in a room full of famous, accomplished, rich people, your only option is to dress up in eccentric outfits and be loud because that's the only way you're going to be noticed. And that's the only way you can have, you know, but we weren't, but that wasn't really the crowd. I mean, there were some famous rich people there, but there was also a lot of people that no one will ever know their names and they were yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, and that like the fact that we know, you know, Zet, for example, this really amazing artistic talent who was doing all these different performances at area. It was really fascinating what, what he was doing. Um, thankfully he made it out, but like there, there are so many people at that level of creativity that never made it out either from addiction or from AIDS or whatever it was. But mm -hmm. to me, it was, it was, that's why I don't remember what famous people I met because they weren't necessarily the most interesting people in the room. They were not as we didn't have as much access to them, but just, just the insanity, the, beautiful insanity of it was was really um there was a lot of juice there you want to talk about some famous people that we met i'm going to read to you now <laughs> um this is um andy warhol's funeral my account of andy warhol's funeral that we went to and if you'll remember the funeral was on april 1st and we were convinced that it was an art world hoax and that Andy was alive and he was going to pop out of his casket. And so the whole, so we dressed like we were going to a party. Okay. And it was a funeral and we were in our hair in LeMay and our boobs out high heels on and we go there. And this is what happened. Uh, um, April 1st, 1987 with Lisa, Michael, Michael's photographer, and Michelangelo Signorelli um, to St. Patrick's early in the morning. We were late, uh, so we made a big dramatic entrance while tons of photographers took our pictures outside. We were led up to the front of the line, and Judith Martin, Miss Manners, was right in front of me, and uh, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. We took communion with Don Johnson and Klaus von Bülow. Uh, I made Lisa come with me, and she's Jewish, and people were appalled. I don't know if you remember, you were in the New York Times, the New York Post. I do. I was like, I'm a fucking Warhol funeral. I'm going to take communion. <laughs> I'm Episcopalian, so I could take communion. But you were you were there in line with Klaus von Bülow, who had just murdered his wife, and he was taking <laughs> communion. And it was a scandal. Okay. Um, Yoko Ono spoke. Cornelia Guest, Viva, Baby Jane Holzer, and Bridget Polk were in front, in the front pew with Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Francesco Clemente. Liza Minnelli waved hi to Michelangelo. We don't know why. Grace Jones in <laughs> Azadine, crying and looking fabulous, pushing photographers out of her way. Claudette Colbert arrived, 30s actress, right? Marissa Berenson, Calvin and Kelly, Halston, John Waters, Irene Worth, another 30s superstar. Raquel Welch made a fabulous exit. 
Diane and Rudolph looked resplendent, if a bit fluorescent, because remember Diane was on that carrot and miso soup diet, and she turned orange. <laughs> she turned bright orange. <laughs> okay. Afterwards, we went to the party at Steve Rubell and Brian McNally's new club. Toot Lamond was there, darling. Uh, Don again, Don Johnson, Yoko. Debbie Harry, uh, Dominic Dunn, Timothy Leary, Richard Gere talked to us for half an hour and shoved his hands in Valerie Harris's camera, Bianca, Klaus von Bülow talking about boobs with Lisa. Yes, Monique Van Voren with a new chin, she said she'd just gotten a transplant. John Waters, David Hockney, Pat S., Mary McFadden, Tama Janowitz, who said, come over some night and I'll cook beef for you. Okay. Sylvia Miles, who said she bleached her hair for the occasion. Marcus Billy, uh, Billy Norwich, I guess, Marcus Leatherdale, Borgard Houston Montgomery, Alan Rich, Hetty Kleiman, Kent, Susan Blonde, who was in Bad, and she was a record executive after that. Matthew Ralston, Kimberly DuRoche, Patty Darbinville looked fab. Um, other people who were there, George Plimpton, Lou Reed, Beverly Johnson, Stephen Sprouse, Henry Gedlazar, Steve, Billy Squire, Peter Allen, Robert Maplethorpe, Andrew Wyatt. Andrew Wyatt. Can't believe he was still around. Leroy Martin, Lynn Wyatt, the socialite, Carolina Herrera, Amit Erskine, Tina Chow. It just goes on and on and on. It's amazing that you wrote all that down. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm wondering. Like you went home and wrote it down that night? Uh, I, I, I did. Yes, I was very. He did. He was. He did. But he was also so, that's what was so interesting about going out with James was like, he really knew who everybody was, all their history, um, was, he was dedicated to what he was doing. It was very exciting to be around. And Andy Warhol, because that was just, you were just reading about Andy Warhol's funeral uh, or memorial. Lisa, what was Andy Warhol like to you? From what I can remember, the longest conversation I had with Warhol was about the movie Kindergarten Cop, which he loved. Um, he probably uh, loves that. <laughs> it was, it was, I was like, I can't believe I'm walking down the street talking about kindergarten cop with Andy Warhol. Um, but honestly, like, I don't remember details beyond that because I don't really know that we, I knew enough to know that Warhol was this amazing icon. Um, and so it was definitely not a natural feeling to just like hang out. I, I, of all the people, like I knew him. <laughs> Randy, do you remember we were once in the, we went to the movies to see an awful movie. I think it was called Vision Quest or Quest or something. It was really awful. It was like a Footloosey type imitation. And the theater was empty and three seats over was Andy Warhol on his own. And we were like, so just like. You didn't say hello? No, because the iconicity was so great. You couldn't just go up and say, oh, hi, Andy. It just, it felt but it was like a sort of. We did. We would go up and say, "Oh, hi, Andy." That was really James. That's what I was just gonna say because I had a tendency to run up to Warhol every time I saw him and jump up and down like a monkey, saying, "Andy, Andy, take my picture." Andy, Andy, do you like my outfit? Like I'm wearing, I'm wearing a little dress. And I'm supposed to be, you know, little Red Riding Hood or whatever. And so I yeah. think we we annoyed him more than anything. He liked banal pop culture. Yeah, I mean that was his thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. We did spend a lot more time with him than I think we realized. We were in limos with him. We, uh, I know I, there's a picture of a dinner table and I'm like, I'm 
there. I'm that's my face in the mirror that's behind Andy. <laughs> There's my hair. I'm sitting there. What am I saying? <laughs> I I had I saw um, online uh, on Instagram there were pictures that Andy had taken of me and Diane that I had never seen before, and I was like, Andy, oh really? oh that's Andy cool. took pictures of me with, and I'm like resting on Diane's boobs. <laughs> I just found that picture the other day. I have to send it to you. I just found it on <laughs> my computer. Wait, one more, just one more um, quick thing from from my diaries that I want to see if you remember because I know you probably don't. I love this diary stuff. This is amazing. This is February 11th, and I'm thinking it's 87. Uh, woke up at 9 p.m., <laughs> which is the thing that I did. <laughs> um, uh, turned on the news and found that people were murdered in Lisa's building. The Bleecker Street bloodbath, they called it. Uh, tried to call her, but she wasn't a a around. Um, uh, so I went over to see her about it. Do you remember this? No, we have to Google it. The Bleecker Street bloodbath. And I'm wondering if that's where I got my disco bloodbath from. I wonder. I don't remember that at all. That's so interesting. I'm good at Google it. Let's now get to uh, the the article in the New York Times Magazine that um, comes like almost a year and a half, two years into uh, going out. Yeah. It really um, changed everything for you. Uh, yeah, it did. Maureen Dowd. Yeah. Maureen Dowd, yeah. Yes. So uh, she had called Stephen Sabin to, she wanted to do a piece about the club scene and like, you know, who was the it girl and Stephen and Patrick and Annie and uh, I don't, maybe Michael too. I think Michael was also asked, they had all recommended me. And Michael funnily enough said that he knew it might have repercussions, but, and so he was like, I don't know if this is I'm doing a nice thing or not a nice thing. Uh, by recommending her. And so they followed me around for a day and I really tried to show them that I was like legitimately trying to be an actress. I was in a play. I was doing this. I was doing that. Um, but that's not what the story was really about. Um, uh, I knew because of Sally Randall, because she had had a big article written about her. And, and after that sort of in New York magazine sort of fell out of favor with a lot of people. People accused her of it, it was it was too much too soon is is what the sort of and about what like what's it about yeah and, and what, yeah what why why are we spending five pages but the truth is like at the moment Sally at least was like sort of iconic in her fashion sense like she did have a thing uh -huh. I didn't really have a thing I was just like a bubbly excited girl. Um, uh, so when the article came out, Maureen Dowd was very, very kind to me. She, she really said she could have destroyed my life and she didn't. I mean, not that I was doing anything terrible, but she could have just viewed me as something to not take seriously. And she, uh -huh. and she didn't, she, she took me, she took care of me. I was, I don't know why, but I'm very grateful for that. Um, um, and then all of a sudden this article comes out now it's like national, international people know who I am. And the people in the club scene, I felt a lot of resentment coming at me. Um, I felt like, again, like what happened to Sally, like, why her? Why are we giving? And I didn't disagree with that because, again, we were around some of the most talented and interesting creative people. Accomplished people, people who are, yes. Or, or should be accomplished, should get recognition, should be giving that step up. And that wasn't me. Um, and so... 
but maybe I was the most palatable because I was like a cute girl. You know what I mean? Whatever. I, there was something edgy about. Well, no, but I think you're selling yourself short here because there was, like I said, like I've said from the beginning, there was a glamour about you and a watchability about you and you had an it factor and you definitely deserved to be an it girl because you were somebody that was fun to be around and everybody you, you were the center of attention wherever you went and that's where the idea of an it girl is is that you walk into a party and you right. you make the party happen and so that is what you did and so there was a reason for that but i can you can see where people would be resentful right so then and then all these stories started being told about me that were true and and i i sort of felt like i had lost control of my own reputation um, and I got really, really depressed. I got so sad um, and I felt so foolish. And in addition to all of that, I had like piles of stalkers because my phone number and my address were listed in the in the phone Which, book. It seems like a, a no brainer, but at the time, you, know, you would never even think about that. I was a kid, like I did, and I had no, I had no access to the world at large. You know, my family was not that kind of family, so nobody was thinking in advance about stuff like that. Um, so I had stalkers that like were literally waiting outside my door every morning, that were leaving me messages all day long. That like, and you know, in those days you had a phone machine that you could call for your messages, but you couldn't fast forward, so you had to. So I was like in class on Forty Second Street, and I, in between class I would check my messages, and I'd have to wait for someone to like finish jerking off so I could hear the next message. <laughs> like just standing there, you know, freezing in the winter, like at a phone booth waiting for this guy to finish. Um, and, uh, so it was gross and it was unsafe. Um, so I really retreated from, from that world. Um, and again, like what was the world people were dying. We were at funerals. Like, you know, you guys remember like three, four times a week, there was somebody else dying. And, and so there was real shit going on in the world. And, um, people were either managing it by going to prayer circles like new agey prayer circles or act up meetings and, and protests. And so there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, and so I started to just try to figure out how to get my life back on track. And I volunteered at Gay Men's Health Crisis and I took this like huge, they did a 27 hour workshop teaching everybody about AIDS and what it was and what they knew and what they, what wasn't true. And, and then people found out I was doing that. And, you know, I remember Musto pulling me into a bathroom to show me something on his arm. Like, do, am I dying? Like people were showing me stuff in their mouth, like as if I was the only resource of actual information, even though I was just this kid who'd taken a workshop. Um, oh, wait. It, I also have to point out that at this point, um, you were spending a lot of time with Howie Montag, which I did not realize, and that he was helping you through this. Yeah, Howie, Howie totally took me How, in. Howie Montag was a, a doorman at Studio 54, Palladium, Tunnel, Paradise Garage, Danceteria, yeah, and he also was yeah. a, a writer for Paper and Details, and he... And he, he really had like a chosen family yeah. around him. He was an amazing guy, and he... I never talked to him about what was happening to me, but he completely absorbed me into his world. I, I never knew this. That I th that's just. And what was it that he he did? How how did he help you during the time? 
he just was family for me. Like I was at his house a lot. I was with his community a lot and at dinners there. And, you know, again, my memories are still like, they're all over the map, but, um, they're like scattered bits. Um, but I do remember like he was a safe space and, uh, I talked a lot to Sally Randall at the time, just because I was trying to see how somebody else had managed it. Um, and, and in all that, and then I was like, at the same time, like I got super into like cultish, like new agey shit, just like, you know, this is what you do when you're in trauma. Um, and then finally I was in Elizabeth Suedos. This is my, before I dropped out of college, I was in an Elizabeth Suedos class and she asked us to write a satirical, politically satirical song. And I wrote a song about the sodomy laws and I just like, vomited it out and like did a little half-assed performance of it. And she was, she was mad at me that I didn't commit to my performance. And she told me I needed to keep writing. And that like, when I realized I actually had something to say and a way to say it, it was in her, in her class, which wasn't even a part of the program I was in. Um, and I wrote positive me that, that summer I wrote. And because of the New York times article, the people at La Mama were interested enough to give me a workshop, a weekend workshop um, in one of their black box theaters um, because they knew they could at least fill it with a hundred people because there would be, if nothing else, curiosity um, because I had some notoriety. Um, and then because of that workshop, I was able to get a full production of my, of my musical. And so I really, like that whole thing ultimately propelled me into becoming the artist I wanted to be. It was that pivot that you that, that we talked about, but it's never what you expect yeah. it's going to be. It's never it's not you what know. you expect. Yeah, it didn't it wasn't like, oh, and now I have my chance, but it was like through pain and depression and horror and, and danger. How art always happens. While this was happening, like were you you were withdrawing like like what was your relationship to the club scene and, and how, cause, cause I remember all of this so vividly and, yeah. and even though I, you know, we never had a conversation about it. Like, cause you know, we were always more voyeurs of the scene, but I do remember it. And I remember the pivot. And then I remember you sort of kind of, you know, going away yeah. and, and pursuing your career. But I, I never heard what you thought about, like, was, did you watch the scene change as well? Like, and you guys grew apart also. We grew apart. Well, around that time, I mean, a couple of years, two, three years in, really 87 was when I left um, that part of the scene. But, you know, the, ultimately... James is a gay boy and I was not. <laughs> and so, you know, we sort of like milk bar, boy bar was a bit that, of a... That, 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 yes, the, you, yeah, definitely. But, um, but, and I don't think, I think because James was a gay boy who didn't fit into, you know, uh, conventional understanding of what human beings should behave like or look <laughs> like, he had less of an opportunity than I did. Um, and I think he was angry about that um, to some extent. Like, like he had created a monster that actually had more access um, than he ever oh. would in that, in, that, in that particular time. Nowadays, it would be a different story. But in that particular time. It's such a great play, you guys, by the way. It's a really good play. It's, his plan worked because his plan did work. 
And it worked so much better for you than it worked for him. Yeah, because there was no room for him. Because poor James, poor James is stuck with me and Randy at World of Wonder. <laughs> well, by the same token, see, I had had my big celebutant success earlier. My my, and yes. and it so you know I went to New York with the idea that I was going to become a downtown celebrity, and then I was a downtown celebrity three months later, and that was my life's goal. And then what do you do after you accomplish your life's goal at eighteen? I was sort of like, well. I'm not ready to leave the club scene yet. I Everyone else was graduating and moving on in 87. And I thought, well, I still have more to do here. I still, I, I'm not. Well, and you did. And, and you I really did. did. And you created a whole movement. I mean, truthfully. Yeah. And so that's when I made my pivot to working at clubs and working at doing doors and after hours. And also you weren't a conventional guy. And, and, and even though I also was not conventional, I could play conventional. Like I could find my own way into the world at large because, uh-huh. because of that, that, that opportunity you gave me to like kind of leap off from. I also think that's part of what made the, the New York Times piece sort of so unique is that like I think the perception of it girl like you have a broad appeal so I think it was it was sort of um I I think in in some ways you're very you yeah there are you are an expected it girl because you're so vivacious and and this and that but there's something also unexpected about it when you think of what an it girl is I don't know if I'm making sense here, but there is just something broader about your appeal that, and a lot of times when I think of it girl, I think in very niche terms in a way. Right. And an it girl is meant to end in tragedy. And I was like, that's not going to be me. Like when she was comparing me to Edie fucking Sedgwick, who was dead, I'm like, I get it. I get the comparison. I'm happy to be compared to Edie because she was amazing, but also like really severely mentally ill. (laughs) Like I like, how do you survive this and not fall into that? I think people at large think that the world we were all in, this nightlife, this night fever world is, you were talking about people on the edge and that's very true, but it's also culturally not recognized and culturally dismissed and in the same way it's similar in a way to the homophobia of the time which is yeah you can be gay you can be this but you're gonna die it's gonna have a tragic ending right do you know what i mean that there is this and yet time and again we see that the club life produces extraordinary cultural contributions in the most profound significant ways and that's what james was worried was was commenting on when he wore his straw skirt and then all of a sudden it was in all the windows and I remember it. And it was true. It was like people might have been dying in our world, but everybody else was taking the ideas that they were exhibiting and putting them into the world at large. But but I do think that the thing that saved you was you always had a clear vision of of what you wanted and you were always ambitious enough that you were not going to let anything stop you, you know. And right. you you weren't distracted by by the other things and and it was um like we said before, it was training wheels to discover that fame without accomplishment doesn't work. There's 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 no bedrock there. And fame fame for fame's sake is ugly. Yeah. It's just it's ugly. Um, and that was such a beautiful lesson to learn that uh, immediately, right out of the gate. And then, you know, later when I ended up on MTV, I, you know, it was such a dumb show. And 
I was embarrassed about it. And it was three hours a day, five days a week of national humiliation is how I viewed it. Um, and so what I, what I, two things happened to me on that show that were great. Well, I got a lot of experience on camera and I started this thing called Lisa's World where I started to pull people from that scene who were, I thought, really creative, interesting performance artists. And I would interview them on my show and give them a national platform. Um, and that was really fun to do. And I felt like at least I could be of service, you know, and give back to this community that gave me this opportunity. Um, but um, what was I going to say? But, but I, again, I had another experience of fame for something I wasn't proud of. Like suddenly now I'm an MTV VJ and people are recognizing me whenever I leave the apartment, but I'm not proud of it. I like, I don't want to be known for that thing. I'm like, I'm, I cringe when people recognize me. And so it was like a secondary lesson about fame, like to make sure that what you're doing is something you want to be known for. Um, and so that was when I really started learning to say no to job offers. Like if it wasn't the direction I wanted to be in. It was after um, the MTV uh, gig that that's when you set your sights on LA and you, you moved to LA. I did. I, I had a, I got a great agent from being on MTV. So that was great. So I was like, I'm just going to go to LA and see what it's like. And I got there and it was, it was, there was so much work that I just thought I've got to, I've got to be here. It's amazing to go through your IMDb in the nineties and see how consistently you are on wings and Frasier and, and mm -hmm. uh, just shoot me. And, and, you know, Seinfeld, every, you were, you were just thinking, was there a time when you got out here that, that, that the work wasn't there or it looks very consistent. Well, it took me, it took me about a year. It took me a year. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was not, look, I was 24 when I moved out to Los Angeles, which by LA standards was old to be, 24, Over the hell. Yeah, to be 24 without a resume. Cause these girls that I was up against had been doing it since they were 17 and they were like, fuck you, get out of the waiting room. Um, and it was a really, they were vicious waiting rooms. <laughs> no, I would say, cause James, before you were saying, you know, your trajectory, you know, part of the ingredient is ambition, but I, I think it's also just yeah. discipline to sort of build the kind of career yeah. you've had. Like that is hard work. People do not understand how hard that work is and for it to, to be able to sustain it. Like people do not have careers like that. But I do have to say that Lisa, to her credit, you know, she was working at night at the, at the Palladium. She was getting up and going to school in the day. I mean, she, you, I don't, you didn't sleep for about four years there just because you lived on coffee because <laughs> it, you were working and going out and yeah. going to school. And it, it was just, I, the discipline was there for everything you did. But, and you know what else is really interesting is that that pain that I went through with the New York Times article, that doesn't, that is, it's kind of like, uh, I was just, it, I was just putting it together because in between every big job I've ever had is that pain. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> that pain is always there. Um, you have this, because I love what I do, it means that when I'm not doing it, I am broken up with. I am abandoned. I am alone. I am uh, denied. I am, you know what I mean? And so in a way, like uh, having, I'm just thinking about it now, like that cycle of like rebirth of like having to go through the, this painful, nauseating feeling of uh, when, where am I going? How do I get there? Um, ha has happened to me over and over again in between jobs. 
I mean, that's how you create art. It, it comes from, you, you have to go back to that well every single time. Yeah. And you think it's the, you think it's, it's never unique. It's always the same well, but you think it's really hard to remember that that is the process of getting to your next place. You never believe that you're going to get, that it's going to happen again. Yeah. Ever. Also, you know, when you're young, you think there's some destination that you're going to arrive somewhere. Right. And then you're done. But the reality is it's just endless. You keep pushing that goalpost. Yeah. We'd never arrive. No, Fenton, (laughs) you know that. You just keep going. <laughs> Until you die. And on that note, everybody, I think that's where we will end this episode. <laughs> we didn't even talk about Michael Ehrlich. Uh, oh, no. I mean, Michael was really more, I mean, we knew Michael when he was in his underwear running around the clubs because he was the same age as us. But you really, I never liked Michael, but you, you, you liked, you were intrigued by I him. I was intrigued by him. And I think that was. That was where we were starting to part ways. Well, I was also more intrigued with Kiyoki is is what it really was basically. Yeah. But um but I did, but Michael I there was an energy there too that was a yin to my yang that was interesting and yeah. I I wanted to explore that. I understand that. It was interesting. He was a powerful guy even though it was in a really dark sick way, but but it was to me, just danger, pure danger. But you, you, you were in that mode. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You were looking for that. Well, but yeah. um, so, but I do think that that um, we could talk for hours and hours about your LA adventures, and because uh, I know there were many. But um, I think this is probably a good place to end for today. Thank you so much for coming. It was super fun, you guys. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Yes. Is, is there anything that we didn't touch on? Was there Were there things that you needed to get off your chest? No. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> My chest is still here, actually. Randy Fenton, was there anything? We definitely have to have you back for a part two. But it, you were amazing. So lovely to see you. I love it. It was great. Thanks, guys. Nice to see you as well, always. Money, success.